when God looks down on planet Earth, he sees Israel as the beautiful land. Now, some of my dear Reformed friends, I love them in the Lord, but they are so wrong to say that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with the people of Israel. No, the prophet Jeremiah, when he gave the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, said as long as there's a sun in the sky and the stars are there, that's how long I am committed to the people of Israel. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the prophet Daniel, we've begun a look at chapter 8, which features a vision the prophet had concerning a ram and a goat. We find the identity of these two animals in verses 20 and 21. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, and the goat is Greece. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy gives some insight into Alexander the Great, who led Greece and who ultimately conquered the world. My son is an officer in the Marine Corps. He was telling me, you know, they still study Alexander the Great in the Marine Corps in some of his battles. He was a genius of sorts in terms of how he handled his army with lightning speed. People were scared to death of the man. He was the son of the brilliant Philip of Macedon, and his mother's name was Olympus. One biographer writing of Alexander said, Alexander inherited the best quality, qualities of both his parents. His mother taught him that he was an ancestor of the god Enchiles, uh, namely from her side of the family, and that his daddy, Philip, was a descendant of the god Hercules. Now, you talk about motivating a young man. And, of course, at the age of 14, it is said that he broke a horse that no one could ever, ever break. And he used that same horse to run all of his battles until his death. And it was his father, Philip, who said, Alexander, seek a kingdom worthy of yourself, for Macedonia is too small for you. And so he decided to conquer the world. Now look, if two pagan parents with pagan theology can motivate their child to greatness, what we, should we do as believers in the one true God who have the word of God? We need to help them to see what God has called them for and what he has destined them to be. And so in verse 6, in describing Alexander, we're told that he rushed at him this ram with two horns and his mighty wrath. In verse 7, we're told that this male goat approached the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. And that's exactly how Alexander came, nursing a grudge that these people had had for 150 years against the Persians. And so in 331 BC, Alexander the Great comes, he devastates the Persians. This battle is studied to this day. It's one of the bloodiest battles in the history of military operations. Look at verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Daniel is prophesying what is going to happen to Alexander and his kingdom. Now remember, he writes, ever before Greece even exists as a power. They are a small tribe at this point. 
And indeed, Alexander the Great magnifies himself. He gave himself that title. When we were in Jerusalem a few years ago, we were standing at um, the walls, one section of the ancient walls where Suleiman the Magnificent had built this section of the wall. And of course, Suleiman the Magnificent gave himself that title. And one of the guys said, how do you like to be called Carl the Magnificent? He said, you don't suppose this guy had an ego problem, do you? Well, look, Alexander the Great, he takes that title upon himself. But at the zenith of his kingdom, his horn is broken. At the age of 33, he is, gets an arrow in his chest, it becomes infected, and he dies suddenly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And then four generals come, four generals that worked for Alexander, and they divide his kingdom into four sections, as this next slide shows. Cassander is given Europe. I mean, how's that? You know, your boss dies, and here, you can have Europe. Lysimachus is given Asia Minor. Seleucus, he's given the Middle East. And Ptolemy is given Egypt and North Africa. And again, we don't have to guess what these uh, four horns represent, because in verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So there's four generals coming. They're going to take over Alexander's kingdom, but they're not going to have the same might and power and prestige that he did. And I want to remind you, this is written again when Daniel is living in Babylon, and these people are know-nothing people, and he is writing the future. The critics hate Daniel. They can't stand Daniel because it affirms the accuracy and the inspiration of Scripture. So there's the vision of this rambunctious ram. Then there's this vision of the galloping goat. Now there's the vision, and this is where he's leading us, of the horrible horn. Verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So as Daniel's vision continues, he says, out of one of them, that is, out of one of the four divisions of Alexander's empire that were given to his four generals, came a rather small horn. Uh, the ESV, King James says, a, a little horn, though technically it is a different Hebrew word. So the New American Standard is most precise in using a different word and calling it a small horn. But what I want you to see, and this is where God is going to take us, angel, the angel Gabriel is going to show you, and Christ is going to confirm it in the New Testament, that this little horn that we're going to study is going to become a picture, an illustration of the little horn we already studied in chapter 7. The man's name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus Epiphanes. One guy in seminary says Antiochus Epiphanes. Not exactly. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, he's writing this as a prophecy. So the critics who attack the book of Daniel, and they make Daniel an historian of sorts, saying that, yes, there was a real man, Daniel, but he never wrote this book. This was written centuries after because it is so precise. They're saying two things about the Bible. Number one, they're saying it is a dishonest book because this is being written as a prophecy. And number two, they are calling the Lord Jesus a sinner because in Matthew 24, 15, he will quote the prophet Daniel and he will refer to Daniel, not as Daniel the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. 
And so the vision skips from the time of Alexander's empire until after it's divided, and then out of one of those divisions comes this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who becomes a picture of the coming Antichrist. But don't confuse him with the little horn of chapter 7 that we studied. Here on this chart you can see the little horn in chapter 7, if you remember, came from the Roman kingdom. Rome is the fourth kingdom. It never is conquered. It just kind of falls apart from within. But the Bible teaches that at the end of time, it's going to be revived. That there's going to be ten nations that are come together in a coalition. And from, this, uh, from these ten nations, among them will come an eleventh nation who's going to overthrow three. And this eleventh nation is going to have a world leader that we call the Antichrist. And he's going to persecute God's people for three and a half years. We're here in chapter 8. This little or small horn comes from the third kingdom of Greece. Alexander dies, four generals, one of those four. There's a little horn that comes up. He's a fifth horn, so to speak, who comes out of one of the four horns. And he persecutes God's people, not for three and a half years, but for 2,300 days. But the Lord Jesus because we're going to see this man again in the 11th chapter, is going to reference him, and he sees him as a type, as an illustration of this coming Antichrist. You know what a type is. A type is a prophecy in the Old Testament that's given by picture, like uh, Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah offering Isaac. He is a type of Christ where the Father offers his only begotten Son. Well, here we have a type, here we have an illustration of the Antichrist in this man, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, Daniel highlights two dimensions of this coming uh, man's career. First, it concerns the little horn's battles. Uh, in describing this rather small horn, we're given in verse 9 some of the prophetic details concerning his battle strategy. We're told in verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. And of course, that's precisely how the infamous brother of Cleopatra, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, conquered these lands. First, he went southward and he overthrew Egypt. Then he went eastward and he overthrew the region of Babylon. And then he moves towards the beautiful land. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you will see those words, beautiful land, are capitalized. And the translators were right in doing that because this is a proper name. In the New King James, they capitalize it, and they call it the glorious land. The Hebrew is charetz atzipi, and it is a Hebrew word that literally means the glory of gems. When God looks down on planet Earth, he sees Israel as the beautiful land. Now, some of my dear Reformed friends, I love them in the Lord, but they are so wrong to say that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with the people of Israel. No, the prophet Jeremiah, when he gave the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, said as long as there's a sun and the sky and the stars are there, that's how long I am committed to the people of Israel. That's what God says, and we would be wise to listen to what God says. We are not the new Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye. In God's mind, he calls it in one text the center of the world. When I was a kid and we would have those flat maps 
of the world, the United States was always in the center. That's not politically correct anymore, so they don't make them that way. But that's how they were always done in the 60s and 70s in America. Well, if God were to make a flat map of the world, he'd have Israel front and center. And there are two prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, who's a contemporary of Daniel, who describes Israel, this place, as the glorious or the beautiful land. Now, in addition to his battles, and they unfolded exactly as the prophet said. No one disputes that. You can get a history book and read it. Secondly, in verse 10, he tells us about the little horn's blasphemies. The little horn's blasphemies. We're told here, first, that he attacks the saints. His blasphemies come in three areas. First, he attacks the people of God. We read in verse 10, it grew up, this little horn, to the hosts of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now, this term, stars or hosts, is used in two ways in the Old Testament, either of angelic beings or God's people. And the context must determine what is in view. Here he's speaking of the people of Israel. Let me give you some illustrations. Let the Bible interpret itself. In Genesis 15 and verse 5, uh, God takes Abraham when he's 85 outside of his tent. And he says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So he likens people to stars, to Abraham's descendants. When he's 120 years old, just after he attempted to offer up Isaac, God said this in Genesis 22:17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, we will come to this at the end of Daniel in the conclusion. And God describes those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God describes those who lead people to the Messiah like the stars in the heavens. Now, Hollywood has its stars, and God has his stars as well. And those of you who are involved in bringing people into the kingdom, God has a special honor for you in the coming days. And so here, this small horn grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. History records very specifically how in this apocalyptic book, how Antiochus Epiphanes, he's using symbolic language, how Antiochus Epiphanes trampled down the saints of God. He took, when he came into Jerusalem, an apostate Jew who hated the God of Israel, and he made him the high priest. Then he took the Greek god Zeus, and he put him in the temple of God. Added to this, he profaned the Sabbath day and he told the Jewish people, if you want to keep it, then you're going to die. In fact, history records that Antiochus Epiphanes IV killed and murdered over 50,000 Jews in his day. He was the Hitler of his day. He trampled on the people of God. Is it any wonder that this guy who took to himself Antiochus Epiphany, Antiochus the glorious one, the Jews called him Antiochus Epimanes, that is, Antiochus the madman. So he attacks the saints. Secondly, the little horn attacks the sanctuary. When a man's evil activity is allowed to go unchecked, his heart is encouraged to keep going into that evil. It's a biblical principle. So it was not enough for Antiochus to attack the people of God. He sought now, he seeks now to attack the place where God's people worship, verse 11. It, this little horn, 
even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So this verse explains how Antiochus both attacked and profaned the temple of God, the sanctuary of God. First, we're told that this small horn magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And if you look into verse 25, you discover this is the Lord God, his Messiah, who's referred to there as the prince of princes. And so this man, who is a big shot of sorts, who boasts great things, he defies what God says to do in the law of Moses. And again, he's a picture of this coming man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the antichrist, the beast, the little horn, who will defile God's temple. We're told here, he removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. So there in Jerusalem, he stopped the daily sacrifices that God had prescribed for the Jewish people. He ordered them stopped, and he exalts himself above the prince of princes. Verse 12 says, And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. Now the transgression is the reason why Antiochus Epiphanes is able to do what they do. God is visiting judgment on his people. You see, when a people are in rebellion, God does not hear the prayer of that people. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. And so after the Babylonian captivity is all over, the people come back to Israel, and instead of repenting and getting right with God, they continue to live in their sin. And so this man has freedom to go against God's host, God's people. He has freedom to abolish what's called here the regular sacrifice. He attacks the saints. He attacks the sanctuary. But the little horn also attacks the scriptures. Look at the end of verse 12. And it, that is the small horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now the Jews loved the scriptures. And those pious Jews who obeyed God after the Babylonian captivity came back and spent their lives copying the scriptures and preserving the word of God. Antiochus Epiphanes recognizes their love for scripture, so he wants to mock them. And to mock them, Antiochus takes a pig and he goes into the temple of God, into the Holy of Holies, and he slaughters this pig, and he throws the blood all over God's holy place. Now, you know a pig is an unclean animal. It's reprehensible to the Jews. You know, I recently went to a Bible study that some of our Indian brethren invited me to. And I spent about 11 hours one day smoking a Boston Bud. I thought they would just love it. I mean, it was beautiful. It just fell apart. Beautiful smoke ring. It couldn't be nicer. And I brought it. They said, what's that? I said, oh, that's, uh, that's pork, Boston Bud. Everybody got kind of quiet. and Nobody looked at it and did anything with it. And I saw him eating all around it. And one dear brother, Marvin, just wanting to be gracious to me, he took a little bit and put it in his mouth. But you know what a pig is? A pig is nothing but a buzzard with four legs. That's all. For, for them to eat pig, I understand, and I'll bring chicken next time. For them to eat pig would be like me coming to your Thanksgiving dinner and bringing one of our South Carolina buzzards, turkey buzzards. That's how they view it, all right? Well, here's Antigas, and he takes the blood of this pig, and he, 
and he flings it all over this place we call the Holy of Holies, and he mocks the living God. Now, people often ask, as the psalmist does, why do the wicked prosper? It's not because God does not see. It is not because God does not care. But as 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, the mystery of iniquity must be completed. God cares, God sees, and God does not usurp man's free will. He allows in his permissive will man to act freely, but someday God's going to fix it. Now, that's the introduction to the vision. That's the information in the vision. Finally, or thirdly, I want you to see the interruption during the vision. There's an interruption before he gives the interpretation, and it's a very important interruption. Now, to some degree, I've been interpreting the vision as we move along. But unlike Daniel, he didn't have the interpretation. It hadn't been given to him yet. And so he is basically thinking, what is this all about? You know, the prophets were so inspired, Peter tells us in his first epistle, that they would write the scriptures. God worked through their personalities. They weren't like robots. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And you see different writing styles. But then after they wrote it, they had to go back and study it to see what it meant. That's how inspired they were. And so it's like Daniel is seeing this vision be like a stenographer uh, writing down the lecture of a PhD in physics, and he has no idea what it's about, but he's writing it down, and, and then he wants to understand what it's all about. So there's this interruption, and we are signaled that there is interruption with the very first word in verse 13, the word then. And I want to make two observations concerning this interruption. First, what was overheard by Daniel? Let's think about what was overheard. There are two angels that are talking and speaking to one another, and he overhears it. Notice verse 13. Then, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? So here's one angel asking another angel, you know, on some of the TV shows and popular pagan literature on angels that fill shelves in the bookstores in America, angels are sometimes presented almost as omniscient people, but they're not. They are persons. They're not human persons. They're angelic persons. We will judge angels someday, but they are just like us in that they are created and they are finite. So this one angel, knowing, of course, that Daniel is listening, please tell me how long the small horn will attack the sanctuary and how long he will attack the saints of God and attack the Scripture. And the answer comes in verse 14. Notice, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. For 2,100 2,300 evenings and mornings, evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. It's a Hebraism found all the way through the Old Testament that refers to a literal 24-hour day. And so for 2,300 days, this is going to take place. That's about 6.3 years. And by the way, it matches perfectly what secular history records. Because Antiochus arrives in Jerusalem in 170 BC. He immediately forbids the Jewish people to follow their religious practices, their Sabbaths. And, um, 
in 167 BC, that's when he goes into the temple and he slaughters the pig. And anger amongst those God-fearing, righteous Jews is just building and building and building and building and building until this man, Jake, uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus, or Judas of the Maccabeans, as we often refer to him, he comes and he attacks Antiochus and his army. He overthrows them and he restores and cleanses the temple. We call it today Hanukkah. It's called the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication, and it's referenced in the New Testament in John chapter 10. And so uh, 6.3 years, just like God said, hundreds of, a few hundred years before it ever happens. Again, this is why they don't like Daniel. They say, no one could write like this. He has to be writing in the past. After it happened, he can't be writing the future. So that's what he overheard. Secondly, what was overwhelming to Daniel? Well, first he's overwhelmed by the man, as we're going to read of him here in verses 15 and 16. We read of this man. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one that looked like a man. This angel looked like a man. Why? Because angels can appear like people when they come to earth. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, in the invisible realm, when the church gathers for worship, the Bible says there are angels that are here watching us. Paul tells us that. But sometimes there can be angels among us. The guy next to you, you've never seen him before. He might be an angel. He said, it looks more like the devil to me, pastor. Well, listen, uh, they come in a human appearance. And notice how this angel is positively identified. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man, meaning Daniel, an understanding of the vision. Now, there are only two named angels in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael the archangel. And Gabriel appears four times in Scripture, first here in chapter 8, again in chapter 9 of Daniel, and then twice in Luke 1. And in each of the four places, he comes with a message to the Jewish people. Here in this seventh, uh, eighth chapter, in the ninth chapter, he's going to come with a message concerning the times of the Gentiles and the coming of the Messiah. Uh, later, Zechariah the priest, he will come to him. Remember Zechariah? He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the angel Gabriel comes and tells him about a son he's going to have who he is supposed to name John. We know him as John the Baptist. And most famously... He appears to another Jewish woman by the name of Mary, telling her that she's going to carry the Messiah. So Gabriel is a messenger angel. And his focus throughout the scripture is he comes and he speaks truth on behalf of the people of Israel and how it applies to the rest of us. And he comes from the very presence of God, the scripture says, from the throne room of God. And so when Daniel sees this angel, verse 17 says, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Now, the gulf between a holy angel who comes from the very presence of God and a fallen, mortal, sinful man is so great, he's just terrified he falls on his face. Gabriel is the messenger angel, and his focus throughout Scripture is as a representative of the nation Israel and how the things of Israel apply to the rest of us. We'll find out more Monday when we conclude our message entitled Antiochus and the Antichrist. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series on the book of Daniel, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and order a CD or DVD copy at 877-787-7478. Today's program is number DAN11. Tomorrow, Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at Daniel chapter 8 and search the scriptures. <music> 